0: All right, kids, I hope you have a, a great time. If you are uh, remaining in the room, I'd encourage you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 36. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, you can obviously follow along on the screens uh, or on your bulletin as well, but our passage is Second uh, Chronicles uh, chapter 36. So this, this morning, we're going to start a, a new sermon series that we're going to do throughout the summer, um, and it's going to be on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, originally these were one book in the ancient text, but for some reason over history they've, they've split them into two books. And I've always wanted to, to preach on these books, but as, as you're going to discover, uh, they can be a challenge, right? And so I wanted to make sure that I had time to uh, really dig into these books and, uh, and teach them. Um, and so I started this week, and I started with all my study, and I said, well, let me, let me look and see um, who's preached on Ezra and Nehemiah before, and nowadays you can search for sermons and all that sort of stuff online, and I found shockingly few sermons on the book of, books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which was sort of a warning sign to me uh, when I discovered that. Um, so we're going to see how this goes, um, but I think it's, it's profitable in God's word, even though it might be a bit challenging. Um, I think perhaps part of the reason why uh, people have shied away from these books is they they contain a lot of history. Uh, They contain a lot of history from sort of one slice in the history of God's people. And they really talk a lot about a building project. It's really a construction project and the, the significance of that for God's people. But I hope that we discover as we look at these books that while God was rebuilding the structure uh, for God's people in this construction uh, project, he was actually rebuilding their hearts. And I think that's very instructive for us. Um, As someone who's always enjoyed history, I've always been um, drawn to the history in the Old Testament, Uh, but there's really more than just history here. Um, Because what the Old Testament does for us is it shows us not just um, what happened, but it shows us the character of God and how God's character works out in real life and in real tangible ways. And the ways I've explained this before is, is, is maybe in your work you've had an opportunity to hire somebody before. And you know how the process goes. You get someone's resume and you, you read all the facts about them, their education and, and the things that they've done and where they've, they've worked before. But we all know that a resume isn't sort of the, the only thing that we can use. What do we do? We look at a resume and then we call references. We talk to people and we see how that person relates to other people, how they interact with people, how they function in real life. Um, and I think that's what we get in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament history books. We, they show God's character, they tell us about him, but they show how that character works out in real life. It meant something for God's people then, but it means something for you and I as well as we live in this relationship with God and we interact with him in real life and in the real world. And so we're going to look at these books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but this morning we're not even going to open those books yet. We're going to set the stage for what we're going to look at uh, for the rest of the summer by looking at 2 Chronicles at the very end of the book, um, uh, chapter 36, verses 15 uh, through the end of the book, verse 23. So listen to God's word. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them By his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, All these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah... Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill seventy years. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to, re- to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. This is God's word. Father, I'm just so thankful for um, this morning, Lord, and and the chance to worship, Lord. I think uh, particularly of the the song that we sang about how you are enough. And Father, we confess that sometimes we don't believe that. We chase after all sorts of things to to bring fullness of life, and yet in you and you alone is found fullness of life. In you is found understanding, in you is found truth. And so, Father, we pray that as we encounter you in your your word, that you would give us understanding and that you would refresh us in your truth. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So growing up, I used to watch um, Chris Farley. Remember the old actor, Chris Farley? And uh, he played a role called Matt Foley, uh, the motivational speaker. And Matt Foley, the motivational speaker, lived in a van down by the river, And back then, living in a van down by the river was not a very cool thing to do. But now in our culture, if you pay attention, van life has become a really cool thing. And so people will buy a van, they'll outfit it, and they'll, you know, live in the van and travel all over the world doing all sorts of things. Now, I think that's probably a very cool thing to do in one chapter of your life probably it's not sustainable for the entirety of your life. Um, At some point, we all settle down. At some point, we all put roots down. And I actually believe that there's significance to the places in which we choose to live and even a spiritual significance to the places where we choose to live and where we put roots down we build memories, we build experiences in places, we build networks of relationships in all of those places. And that's why we all instinctively know that there's a difference between a house and a home, right? A house is a place, it's a thing. A home is a place where we establish memories and relationships and it's tied to all sorts of emotions. And all sorts of places have significance for us, not just homes but spiritual significance. I remember years ago, uh, I had a, per, a parishioner who was starting to come to church and, and uh, she came up to me after church one Sunday. She said, you know what I love about this church? She said, I love that we worship in folding chairs. And I said, really? We were? You, that's what she realized. She said, I don't ever want us to get fe- pews. I love that we worship in folding chairs. Let's never change that. And I said, well, what makes you like folding chairs so much? She said, well, I came to faith in a church where we worshipped in folding chairs. And so for her, there was a spiritual significance to place and to folding chairs because she looked back at where she came to faith in Christ. Well, for God's people in the Old Testament, there was significance of place. And the most spiritually significant place for God's people for hundreds of years was the city of Jerusalem and the temple. At the very center of that city. This was the center of gravity for God's people. This was the, the city of David. And at the very center of it was the magnificence the magnificence, uh, the magnificence of, of Solomon's temple. Right there in the middle. This was the, the place where God dwelt with humanity. So for God's people, you want to interact with God. You wanted to experience him. You went to Jerusalem. And you went to the temple. But as our passage reminds us, there was a chapter, this dark chapter in Israel's history, where that city and where that temple laid in absolute ruins. The walls of the city had been destroyed. The temple itself had been destroyed. All the religious and golden vessels that were a part of the temple and temple worship had been pillaged and taken to other pagan temples throughout the world. And the majority of the city's population had been deported and exiled. When Ezra and Nehemiah open up, when these books start up, it's decades later, the city is laying in ruins, and the question becomes, how will God rebuild this city? And in the process, how will God rebuild the hearts of his people? So what I want us to see this morning is really three things from our passage. The first is that um, the Lord sanctifies... The second is that the Lord uh, sustains, and finally, the Lord stirs. Rarely do you get alliteration in a sermon from me, but you get it this morning. The Lord stains, uh, s- sanctifies, the Lord uh, sustains, and the Lord stirs. And I hope what we'll see is what, of true, what is true of God's people in this particular moment, what is true for them then can also be true about God's movement in our hearts today. So let's start by looking at the Lord sanctifies, and we don't use that word sanctify a whole lot in our world, but it actually means to refine or to make holy. And so in the case of God's people, this sanctifying process went through uh, many years, and uh, really what you discover if you read through the Old Testament at all is that it was particularly difficult for God's people over all of those years. If you start at the beginning, you start all the way back with Abraham and Moses. One of the things you discover is that God um, chose a certain people to have a very special relationship with. And it was the, they were called the Hebrews at one point, the Israelites at other points, the Jewish people at other points, all the same people. But what you discover is that God had a unique relationship with them. It wasn't an exclusive relationship, but it was a unique one. And God wanted these people to demonstrate to the rest of the world what a relationship with God looked like. At one point, these people are are given a promised land. And if you've read the Old Testament, you have stories about it. And Jerusalem becomes their capital city. And the temple of Solomon was at the very center of this capital city. And it was the very center of their worship. And over the years, they became a very prosperous nation at one point, probably the most significant and powerful nation in the ancient world. But their prosperity got to them. In their prosperity, they forgot about God. um, They rebelled against God. They ignored the cries of the poor and oppressed in their midst. Um, They ignored injustice around them, even contributed to it or promoted it. Uh, they treated the law of God flippantly, not very much, caring for it very much. They worshipped uh, other gods of other nations that were around them. And so for hundreds of years, God would send them prophets. And those prophets would warn them. Uh, the prophets would correct them, trying always to sort of draw them back to God. But what we see is they ignored the prophets. They mocked the prophets. Sometimes they would even kill the prophets. Until we come to verse 15 of our passage this morning, where it says, Until the wrath of God arose against his people, until there was no remedy. You see, for centuries, God had displayed his compassion. His long suffering with this people, he persisted with them, he strove with them, but now their sanctification, their process of becoming holy and becoming more refined, now their sanctification would need to take a very painful turn. They'd ignored God's prophets, so he would need to get their attention in another way. And those of you that are parents, you know that we can only warn our kids about discipline for so long until that discipline finally needs to come. And so we come to verse 17 where it says, Therefore he, speaking about God, brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with a sword in the, in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on a young man or virgin old man or aged he gave them all into his hand what's this talking about well it's talking about the babylonian empire who came in and conquered israel and judah god's people in the process this this foreign king uh, destroyed their temple He destroyed the city of Jerusalem, Um, he raped, he killed, he pillaged, he deported thousands of God's people all over the distinct corners of the Babylonian empire. And so what that meant is God's people, uh, the kingdom of Israel and Judah, were conquered never really to be fully recognized and returned again as a proper sovereign nation. So clearly, this is a dark time for God's people, um, and, and we have to sort of wonder, what does this dark chapter in their history mean? What did it mean for them, but what does it also mean for you and I as well? I think one of the things that we can take away from this is the fact that God is just as serious about our sanctification as he was about their sanctification, Just as he strove with them, God strives with us. Just as he persisted with them, he persists with us. He consistently shows grace and compassion. And this is all a part of his making us holy, conforming us more and more uh, into his image. But I think we also have to remember, and I I thought all week about sort of how to say this um, and wrestled with how to say it. I don't know how better to say it. I think we have to remember at the end of the day, God is not someone to be handled lightly or to be trifled with. Um, And again, there might be a better way of saying that, but that's what I kept walking away from with this passage. We sort of always come back to this this section of C.S. Lewis where he implied that God is not safe. But he, of course, is good. Years ago, I read a book um, by Stephen Prothero um, called American Jesus. And, and he examined um, sort of what, in particular, American religion has done as we've interpreted Jesus in our modern culture. And he, he, the, the big illustration he came up with is, is we've fashioned Jesus into our buddy. We've made God into our buddy. And what he meant by that is when we approach God, we often want to make him into our image rather than conform to his. We want to make God fit our agenda rather than trying to fit his. We want him to rubber stamp our goals and and our desires for our own life. We, We want to talk about his love, but we forget that part of his love is discipline. And so we ignore books like Ezra and Nehemiah because how could God do this? How could God bring about such calamity to a certain people? But friends, we have to take God as he is presented to us in the scriptures. He is a God who sanctifies. He is not safe, but he is good. But one of the things we cannot mistake God's sanctification for is God giving up. That's not what this means. In fact, it means quite the opposite. Because what our passage shows us is it proves to us that yes, God does sanctify, but he also sustains. The Lord sustains If you keep reading, you'll realize that God's people were deported, they were exiled under Babylonian rule. Um, Eventually, the Persians come along, they conquer the Babylonians, um, and so God's people are now ruled by the Persians. And so for, for 70 to 80 years, God's people are really pilgrims in an unholy land scattered all throughout the ancient world. Now, you would think because of that, did God give up on them? But if you keep reading, you discover that God actually did not give up on them. Instead, what he did is he sustained them time and time again throughout these years. Even through their exile, God's doing um, uh, all sorts of things in their midst to care for them, to tenderly look after them, and to sustain and preserve them. We don't really have time to go into it, but just spend some time reading the book of Daniel. You'll read about Shadrach and and Meshach and Abednego. You'll read about how God sustained them and protected them and put them strategically in all sorts of places of influence during this exile period. You can read the book of Esther and you can read about how God used Esther um, uh, to protect Israel from annihilation under the hands of the Persian kings. You can read about all the prophets that God sent to his people, even during this exile people, all the while caring tenderly for them, sustaining them, and preserving them. So even in the most difficult times, God is sustaining them and protecting his people. How many times did our parents remind us of their love, even in the midst of, of their discipline. It's as if God is saying, yes, Israel, uh, this exile, it's your own doing, it's your own mess, it's the consequence of your consistent rebellion, but I'm going to sustain you and I'm going to walk with you through it. Why? Because I love you and I cherish you and I'm going to tenderly care for you every step of the way. Friends, I think this is a great reminder that that we all go through difficult times. Uh, We go through points in our lives where we feel like uh, we're in the midst of ruins, that our lives have been shattered in the midst of ruins that are all around us. And sometimes that happens randomly. Sometimes it's our own doing. We've ruined our own lives. But regardless, know that God will never give up on you. He sanctifies you, and he will sustain you every single step of the way. Lastly, I want us to see here that not only does the Lord sanctify, not only does he sustain, but the Lord stirs. The Lord stirs. There's this beautiful verse in the book of Proverbs that says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Just think about that image for a little bit. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. In our story, we talk about Nebuchadnezzar. We talk about the Babylonians. They were the most powerful empire in the ancient world at this time. And yet God was directing the hearts of even this pagan king and this pagan emperor every single step of the way. In the books of Daniel and Esther, you see God using his people to influence the heart of these pagan kings. God is directing, working behind the scenes, directing the heart of these kings and their empires. But God wasn't done. Because in verse 22 of our passage, he says this, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation. You see, the Persians were introduced to here, they're, they're a bigger and badder empire than the Babylonians even were. And at one point they come in and they conquer the Babylonians and Cyrus is installed as the king of this massive empire. But what do we see here? Now it's time for God to stir the heart of this king for the sake of God's people. It was time for God's people to be released. It was time for God's people to return back and to rebuild what was lost. Now history tells us that this was the practice of Persian rulers. And so you can go back through history and you can see that, that Persian rulers gave uh, those they conquered the freedom to reestablish their religion, reestablish their places of worship, reestablish their temples. The only catch was that if, the, if they were allowed to do so, they had to pray for the Persian king. And so Cyrus allows God's people to do this as long as they would pray for him, and he figured if I can get the gods of all these people on my side, things will be good, and the people will like me. So this was part of the practice of these Persian kings to do this, but that's not the real reason why they did this. The real reason is that God was behind it all. God was behind the scenes, stirring the heart of these pagan kings. It wasn't just political strategy. It was part of the plans and the purposes of God. And so the Lord sanctifies, the Lord sustains, and the Lord stirs. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're going through a time where you feel like your life is in a bit of ruins all around you. Sometimes it's hard to tell if you're in this uh, place for some random reason or because it's your own doing, but either way, you can be confident that God has you right where he wants you to be and all of it is a part of his plan and his purpose. He will use whatever it is to sanctify you and he will sustain you through it every single step of the way. Now, anytime we come to a passage like this, we're, let's be honest, we're sort of taken back by the wrath of God. And you see that in our passage, right? People losing their lives, uh, being deported, all of it, the judgment of God being manifest in the hearts and lives of his people and let's uh, be honest, it's, it's sometimes hard to read passages like this about the wrath of God, especially for modern people and for modern audiences, because we see the, the anger and the wrath and the judgment of God poured out because of sin. But one thing we always have to bear in mind whenever we come to passages like this is this, and that is the gospel. Because in the gospel we see the wrath of God being poured out against sin, all of its intensity, all of its judgment. In the gospel we see the wrath of God poured out against sin, but it is poured out on his very own son, Jesus Christ. He took the wrath of God that we deserved so that you and I would not be overcome He took the wrath and the judgment of God that we deserved so that you and I could rebuild the ruins of our lives. In fact, only because of Jesus and only because of his work on the cross for us can we ever, like God's people, return and rebuild. Let's pray.